Greetings, Progateers, and welcome to Is This Prog, an all-new podcast series from the creative minds behind Desert Island Dicks, Keep Talking, and The Revelation Station. In each episode, I'll be listening to a different album and asking the question, Is This Prog? Episode 3, Zuluk de Jean-Michel Jarre. Welcome back to Is This Prog with me, Mr. Monday. In my first two episodes, I covered albums by two of the biggest bands of all time, British acts The Beatles and Queen. For this episode, I want to go international and also focus on a solo artist, the French electronic pioneer Jean-Michel Jarre. Born on the 24th of August 1948, Jarre is the son of film composer Maurice Jarre most famous for scoring Lawrence of Arabia and other David Lean movies, and a concentration camp survivor and resistance fighter, Francette Peugeot. After his parents split when he was aged five, he spent six months of each year living with his grandparents in Lyon. His grandfather was something of an inventor and designed one of the very first audio mixers, which was subsequently used at Radio Lyon. Young Jean-Michel had piano lessons as a child and spent time at a Paris jazz club run by a resistance friend of his mother's. There he learned that instrumental music could touch the soul instinctively and he realised that music could paint pictures with frequency and sound. As a young man he made money selling his paintings, composing music in his Paris apartment. His first single, La Cage, slash Eros Machine, was released in 1971 and mixed tape effects and synthesizers in a bit of a foreshadowing of what was to come. He released two low-key albums in 1973, Le Grange Brûlée, a soundtrack album, and Deserted Palace. Neither received much attention, but Jarre was kept busy composing music for supermarkets, airports, TV, theatre and even advertising jingles for the likes of Pepsi and Nestle. However, it was his 1976 album, Oxygen, released on the Disque Moteurs label in France and Polydor internationally, that really brought him to the attention of the public. It was released on the 5th of December 1976, and by April had sold 70,000 copies in France alone. The follow-up, Equinox, was a similar hit, but he didn't really pick up until Jarre played at a Bastille Day concert in 1979, which had one million attendees, after which it sold 800,000 copies between the 14th of July and the 31st of August. At the time, Jarre held the record for largest audience at a concert, a record he would go on to break three times in all. He remained active throughout the 80s, 90s and into the present day, notably becoming the first Western artist invited to play in the Chinese Republic, and also playing vast free concerts in Houston and Lyon, and he also played at London's Docklands in 1988, which was, incidentally, the first ever live concert I attended. He also recorded an album called Music for Supermarkets, which had only one copy pressed before the master plates were destroyed. It was broadcast once in its entirety on Radio Luxembourg and has never been released since. Jean-Michel Jarre has continued to release music, including sequels to Oxygen and Equinox, with his latest album, Oxymore, in 2022, as well as continuing to play concerts. Most recently, he played a virtual concert at Notre Dame on the 31st of December 2020. 
He actually played in a Paris studio, but he appeared at the cathedral in VR. To date, that concert has had 75 million views. Throughout his career, he's been an innovator on the forefront of electronic music, never quite achieving true mainstream success, but constantly pushing boundaries of sound, painting pictures with music, if you will. To the casual observer, Zuluk was Jean-Michel Jarre's fourth album, released in November 1984, following up on Magnetic Fields released three years earlier. But in actual fact, it was his seventh release, coming around 18 months after that one-off music for supermarkets. Magnetic Fields had seen Jarre experiment for the first time with vocal samples, but the overall sound was still similar to Oxygen and Equinox. For Zuluk, the songs themselves would be built around human voice samples in 25 different languages. But to go back a little, Jean-Michel was a student of, and very much influenced by, the music of Pierre Schaeffer, who created the Groupe de Recherche de Musique Concrete in 1951. Music concrete, literally concrete music, was a movement towards less traditional instruments and an attempt to add any and all sounds into the creation of music. He also pioneered the use of tape looping and splicing, as well as manipulating sounds to create new ones. Effectively invented sampling, and as such, his influence on modern music is huge. Rap groups such as De La Soul and Public Enemy, for example, use the techniques he pioneered to create their albums even today, and electronic music as a whole owes a huge debt to him. He died in 1995 and Jar dedicated his follow-up to Oxygen to him in 1997. Now the reason I bring up Pierre Schaeffer is because Zuluk is very heavily influenced by the music concrete movement. The sounds which are utilised on the album were recorded by Jar on his travels or by French ethnologist Xavier Belanger, which is why there is such a diverse array of languages used on the album. In 1984, it was almost trendy to be working with world music, thanks to luminaries such as Brian Eno and Peter Gabriel, but Jarre didn't want to make a statement about those cultures. He wasn't interested in shining a spotlight on African or Chinese people. Rather, he wanted to take those sounds and use them as an instrument. From a 21st century perspective, the works of Gabriel and Eno could be perceived as cultural appropriation, but the way Jarre uses samples on Zuluk to create brand new and unique sounds certainly can't. The album was mainly recorded in Jean-Michel's home studio in Paris, before decamping to New York to record with American musicians such as Adrian Bellew, then a member of King Crimson, Ira Siegel, Marcus Miller and Yogi Horton. Whilst in New York, Jarre read an article about an exhibition by singer Laurie Anderson, so he contacted her with an offer to sing in a completely made-up language on the album. And, after hearing the demos, she accepted and provided the ethereal voice on the track, Diva. In a 2012 interview with interviews.org, Jarre said that he was always trying to make music without thinking about the audience, and that for Zulu, the idea was to create a vocal album but not using vocals in a traditional way. In terms of his existing catalogue, Zuluk was a departure, but one which he would build on for future albums. His next release in 1986 would be Rendezvous, which would see him using more familiar soundscapes before returning to a heavily sampled sound on 1988's Revolutions. By 1984, prog rock was starting to make a bit of a comeback after nearly withering away completely. 
Marillion had given the genre a shot in the arm the previous year and returned in March with their second album, Fugazi. King Crimson released their 10th album, Three of a Perfect Pair, the same month, and Rush put out their 10th, Grace Under Pressure, a month later. Also in April, Roger Waters released his debut solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, whilst fellow Floyd man Dave Gilmore released About Face, his second solo album, in March. And if you wanted more solo Floyd action, Rick Wright released Identity under the band name Z at the start of April. There were releases from established prog acts, Camel, Mike Oldfield and Jethro Tull, and of course Frank Zappa released a couple of albums as well. Steve Hackett released his experimental world music-influenced Till We Have Faces in August, which he'd recorded in Brazil, so Jean-Michel Jarre wasn't the only one to be playing in the world music sandpit. Most notably, though, there were debut albums in 1984 from new prog bands Palace, Queensreich, News from Babel and Solstice, some of whom are even still around. So perhaps it's not the best year to be a prog fan, There aren't any real blockbuster releases, but at least the genre wasn't completely dead. So, before we head out for some fresh vegetables, let's remind ourselves of my rules of prog. Rule 1. Do the songs contain meaningful lyrics, perhaps in the form of a story? Rule 2. Do songs deviate from verse, chorus, verse structures? Number three, does the album contain songs which are over five minutes in length? Now I know what you're thinking here. You're thinking, Mr Monday, you're thinking. Your very first rule states that prog rock has to have lyrics that are meaningful, perhaps in the form of a story. How then can this album be prog? Surely it fails at the first hurdle. Well, yes. Technically, you're correct. There are no lyrics, so by my own rules, it can't be prog. Catch 22. But there are albums by prog artists which are instrumental. Camel's Snow Goose and Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells spring immediately to mind. So how do we decide if an album is prog, if it doesn't have lyrics? So I said in my first episode when I was explaining the concept of the show that I'd be open to adding or changing rules as I went along. And here it seems to be necessary. So let's revise a rule, shall we? Has the artist created music which is complex or experimental? So what I'm saying here is fundamentally the same, that songs do not follow a regular verse, chorus, verse structure, but without placing an implied emphasis on vocals. But there still aren't any lyrics, which is an issue. So that means I'll need to add another rule to compensate for that and slightly change the parameters of my reviews. So... Let's just say... 4. Has the artist used new technology or techniques to enhance the listening experience? So going back to the introduction, one of the things mentioned in the Wikipedia entry for prog is technology was harnessed for new sounds. We know that prog artists were among the first to try out new things. Peter Gabriel was responsible for bringing the first Fairlight synthesizers to the UK, for example. And it was the move away from guitar-based rock that first distinguished prog from more popular music. Creating a soundscape is as important to prog as telling a story with words, perhaps even more important. So with the addition of that rule, let's say that we can ignore rule one 
for any instrumental tracks or albums. That means my previous verdicts on Abbey Road and Queen 2 can still stand, but now the rules can apply equally to tracks which are instrumental as well. Great, now that's sorted, we can get on with assessing the album. But let's first revise those rules. One, do the songs contain meaningful lyrics, perhaps in the form of a story? Two, has the artist created music which is complex or experimental? Three, does the album contain songs which are over five minutes in length? Four, has the artist used new technology or techniques to enhance the listening experience? Oxygen and Equinox both start off in a similar way, with an atmospheric synth that conjures up a more symphonic space-age sound. Magnetic Fields opens with a repeated keyboard riff before a synth pattern comes in. All three use the keyboard to build, although a Magnetic Fields very quickly ups the tempo and becomes much more upbeat than either Oxygen or Equinox. Zuluk doesn't follow this pattern, instead starting with a sampled vocal coming in almost like a cry or a scream, which was joined by a chorus of other vocal samples to create the atmosphere. While the three earlier albums perhaps sound dated due to the use of synths, by using samples instead, this first track holds up well in the 21st century. Jacques has made a significant change to his sound here, and as such we can say he's fulfilling my newest rule, and enhancing the listening experience with these new sounds, as well as making something that is complex and experimental. He's also creating a unique soundscape, and for me this is one of the creepiest albums, purely based on the samples he's used. Perhaps it's because they're clearly real vocals rather than computer-generated, but this album is unsettling, and it's a far cry from the almost synth-pop of his previous releases. This opening track is nearly 12 minutes long, so it also fits rule 3. The song does become more like a traditional jar piece towards the end, when it breaks down into a funky bass-driven piece, but it never quite loses that sense of the ethereal, and that's taken even further on the following track, Diva. It's a uh... 
features the otherworldly vocals of Laurie Anderson. So this track carries on in an unsettling fashion with an almost constant dripping until about three minutes in when it changes again to once more become more typical Jar Fair. The track's longer than five minutes and we're hearing new sounds being used and the fact that Laurie Anderson is speaking nonsense adds to the strange feeling of the album. She does it so well that we feel like we should try to interpret what she's saying. Like, it's like seeing a face in a random pattern, but because we can't, it makes the whole thing feel slightly uncomfortable. I said before that this album is not an easy listen, and this song demonstrates that very well. It's by turns irritating and strange, and there's nothing else really like it. <laughs> And with this one, we're on firmer Jean-Michel Jarre ground. It's a repeated theme throughout. It's a much more conventional piece, which, apart from the vocal samples, could have been from any of his previous albums. Unsurprisingly, this was released as the first single from the album, and you can find a video for it online, directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunet of Alien Resurrection and Amélie. 
I love this track. It's another funky number, but apart from using those vocal samples, we don't get much experimentation here. It's also less than four minutes long. And the following track, Wulumulu, is also fairly short. really difficult one to judge. On the one hand, it's a typical atmospheric synth-driven piece, with a loop forming the base of the track, but on the other it fits with the slightly disturbing sound of Ethnicolor and Diva. Puts me in mind of Aphex Twin, almost building a nightmare of repeated loops, with sounds layered and added to as the song builds. It's the samples that really make it an uncomfortable listen. It's short, yes, but any longer and it will probably be unlistenable. Jar is really pushing the envelope of listenability with this album. Without a doubt, this fulfills Rule 2 in its new form. This is a highly experimental album.
Zoolocology comes next and brings with it a sense of relief. Its rock-style opening leads into another funky track that you could almost dance to. Like Zuluk before it, this one is much more typical of Jar's sound, and indeed it was released as a second single from the album. For me, this could be on Magnetic Fields or Rendezvous's next album. It's a great track, and like I said, it's a welcome break from some of the more unsettling pieces, but it's not doing anything new. That's also true of the next track, Blah Blah Café. to admit something to you here and it's something that probably sways me towards this being a prog album i've been listening to this album since probably 1987 so about 36 years as of this recording listener it was only in the last month that i realized the sample that makes up the main part of the track was saying vegetables fresh vegetables over and over again check it out listen to it again see if i'm right i am right (laughs) The very fact that I've been listening to this for so long and can still discover brand new things in the music speaks volumes for how complex this music is. Jean-Michel Jarre has created this vast soundscape that requires many, many listens to fully uncover everything hidden within. Although this track is a jaunty little number, it contains multitudes. Just like the very best of prog music, the more you listen, the more rewarded you are. So let's listen to a bit of the final track.
first two sounds like a busy airport terminal. Not quite as creepy sounding as the first track, but it has a building sense of tension created by the rising synth samples. We get what sounds like a cello adding some depth to the music, as well as the by now typical vocal samples. It is repetitive, and it adds to the overall unsettling nature of the album. Is short, it's less than four minutes, so it doesn't quite fulfil rule three. But then none of the tracks on what would have been side two of the vinyl album actually do. Neither do they form an overall melody, although a couple of the tracks do run into each other. This has a strange, breathless vocal sample which runs throughout the track, before it finally ends by leaving the airport and all the music is lost as we walk or drive away. Let's recap the album. We've got some songs which are over five minutes long. It's an incredibly experimental album, almost to the point of being unlistenable in places. But it's also one of the creepiest albums I've ever heard. I would not recommend listening to it on your own in the dark. It's undoubtedly complex, if only because there are so many samples used throughout the album, that it would be impossible to take it all in from one listen. In terms of my brand new Rule 4, it uses technology in a new way, namely using those aforementioned samples to build up the tracks, and also using real instruments for the first time in a Jean-Michel Jarre record. This is also his least successful album until 2002, in the UK at least, and that's probably because he deviated from his usual sound. This is not a safe record, and he should be applauded for pushing musical boundaries. Again. So the final verdict. Is this prog? Yes. There's no doubt in my mind, this is as complex and experimental as music gets. Might not have songs about dragons or rainbows, but it creates a foundation for the rest of Jean-Michel's career. He wouldn't go quite as sample crazy on his future albums, but he will continue to use them, just as he embraces other technologies as time passes. Think of the laser harp in Rendezvous 3. It may not have been as influential as Oxygen or Equinox, but this is a brave attempt to try something completely different. For me, it succeeds. It's one of my favourite of his albums, but I can totally understand those reviewers who called it unlistenable. It requires repeated listens to get the most from it, and what could be more prog than that? <laughs> Agree? Disagree? Why not let me know at the Revelation Station podcast at gmail.com email address? Why not join me in the next episode when I'll be going back to a more traditional rock album? Join me then as I review an untitled album by Led Zeppelin. Thank you for listening to Is This Prog from the Revelation Station. Presented, written and produced by Simon Helper. All music is copyright the respective artists. If you've enjoyed it, please consider buying or streaming. Send your album or rule suggestions, or just your thoughts on the episode, to revelationstationpodcast at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash revelationstationpodcast 
or for a less long-term commitment, you can donate the price of a coffee by heading to buymeacoffee.com and searching for the Revelation Station. This has been a Revelation Station production. No one has any questions? <laughs> Question, Mr. Monday.